Welcome to the Women of TBC podcast. You'll hear content from women's Bible studies and other women's events. For more information, visit templebiblechurch.org. So good to see you guys back. I did not know how many people would actually make it. We have so many people either out with COVID or have a primary exposure to COVID, and so so thankful that you're here. All right, I hope you guys had a wonderful uh, time of discussion uh, with your groups. My discussion was so rich and made me want to rewrite everything that I just wrote for today's lecture, uh, but it was, it was really good. I want to remind you of one announcement. Uh, we do have this project that we are, have started. Um, together, we're going to be encouraging female coaches in our area, and we started with some coaches from Belton ISD. So remember, on your box, you have a a tag that shows you which coach is assigned to your table. Um, First task last week was to be praying for that coach or coaches. This week, I would like for you to write a note of encouragement to them. And at first, leaders, I had told you to reach out to to that coach and try to get maybe some personal information so we could send it to them in the mail. I've decided this week, let's just all bring back a note of encouragement, put it in your box, and we will mail them directly to the school with their name on it, okay? So that's your task this week, is to write a note of encouragement to your particular coach, okay? And you can just drop it in your box next week when you get here. All right, one of the things that I love for us to do together when we come together in this um, setting is to just kind of transition by singing together a song of worship, a song of praise. And last fall, we started this um, attempt at using hymns and we're going to keep that going this spring, um, singing a hymn together. And the one that we're going to sing this morning um, is, is a, a newer hymn. You've probably heard it, Before the Throne of God Above. But I, th- I think it's so important to this lesson because this is where Jesus is seated uh, as we watch him ascend. Such an important part of the gospel we're going to talk about. And so, um, so we're going to sing this together, thinking of, of Jesus ascended to the throne of God above. So let's stand, and we're going to sing this together with the video. Yes. 
Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after suffering many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So we're going to stop here for a minute. Luke starts off this book by referring us back to the gospel of Luke and reminding us that his aim then and his aim now was to write down all the things that Jesus did and taught. And I hope you talked about that at your table. That kind of assumes that he's going to continue to do and teach things in the book of Acts. But I want to focus on verse 3 for a minute, where it says that Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering many proofs, speaking about the kingdom of God. Interesting statement. What, what did Jesus need to prove, and what were some of the proofs that he suffered? So I want us to, to look back into Luke's gospel. At the end of Luke's gospel, chapter 24, you can turn back there and just keep it open. I'm going to put a few of these verses up on the screen. Let's just refresh ourselves about some of the things that Jesus did after his resurrection uh, to prove many things. Okay, you remember back about midway through chapter 24, Jesus was walking, or two men were walking on the road between Jerusalem and Emmaus, and Jesus just showed up. They didn't quite recognize him, but he just showed up and he started talking with them. And it says in verse 27, that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then later he went into their home and they broke bread together. And then this amazing miracle happened and their eyes were opened and they recognized him in verse 31. And then he vanished from their sight. Well, then a little bit later in the chapter, in verse 36, the disciples were gathered together and they were talking about Jesus. And Jesus just showed up in the room and they were scared. It says they were afraid because they thought that perhaps he was a spirit or a ghost. And Jesus said this in verse 38, Why are you troubled? Why do, you, why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And then a little later, in verse 45, it says that he opened their minds in that gathering to understand the scriptures. These are some cool things that Jesus did after his, after his resurrection. So why do you think he needed to do this? Why did he need to prove to these, especially these close disciples, that he was alive? Well, first of all, I think Jesus loved his disciples deeply. He spent a lot of time with them, and he knew that the mission ahead of them was going to be costly. It was going to cost most of them their lives. Most of them are going to be martyred for their faith. So I think Jesus wanted them to be sure. He wanted them to see him and to touch him, and to talk to him, to give them courage for the task that was ahead of them. He also knew that they were going to be the ones responsible for making sense of what it meant that Jesus died and rose and eventually will ascend and give his Holy Spirit, and they needed to understand how it all fit together. Whoa, sorry. 
They needed to understand how that all fit together. And so he opened their eyes. Such a kindness that he gave them. But secondly, I think that it was really important because the resurrection was going to be vital to the gospel message. And it it was likely going to be subject to a lot of speculation and myth. People were going to be making up stories that Jesus didn't really die. He didn't really rise, or he didn't really rise again. And so God wanted to leave plenty of evidence that the resurrection actually happened. He gave us evidence of its validity and of its authenticity. There's this really cool moment in one of Paul's letters uh, to Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul is trying to convince these people what the gospel is really all about. And so you see it up on the screen. It starts with things that we might think about, that he died, that he was buried, that on the third day he rose again. But then Paul thought it was important that he tell these people that Jesus appeared first to Cephas and then to the 12, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. So Paul is going to need this kind of validity as he presents the gospel for years to come. So I think it was so important that Jesus move out and prove to people that he was alive. But he also had to do something else. He had to move up to the throne of heaven. Now remember, Lazarus had died not too too many months before Jesus and had been risen from the dead. And so people knew about that. That was, I mean, shocking, but it had happened before. And Lazarus was going to die again. But Jesus is the only one who would ever be raised from the dead, never to die again. So it was very important that this be proven, that they see him move up, ascend in bodily form. So we're going to talk about that um, for a good chunk of time here. Let's, let's go back to our text, Acts chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 4. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took them, took him out of their sight. So I think this is really interesting. I think the disciples were clearly confused here because Jesus had told them to wait in Jerusalem for something amazing. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and he's going to baptize you. And yet when they get together, they're asking questions about something else. They're not thinking about that. They're saying, Lord, look at verse 6, Lord, are you going to at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So I think they were kind of saying something like this, are you, are you finally going to make things better for us? We're tired of being oppressed. We really want you to do something exciting, something miraculous. And Jesus, his answer seems really vague when he says, well, you know what, it's not for you to know those times. The Father has, has set times by his own authority. It's not for you to know. But Jesus actually gives them an answer 
I just think it wasn't what they're expecting. He says, you're going to get to be a part of a kingdom. It's just not the kingdom of Israel. It's the kingdom of God. And you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to extend this kingdom to the ends of the earth. And you're going to do that when the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And we're going to talk about that a lot next week because that's what's about to happen in chapter 2. But I want us to focus on, on the ascension because this is where he confirms to these men that this mission is, in fact, going to take place, and he gives them the confidence to go out and do it by moving up in their sight. They watch him ascend in bodily form before their very eyes. Now, to me, this is one of the most important and the most misunderstood parts of the gospel. The ascension is part of the gospel story. And so I want to try to convince you quickly here this morning four reasons why I think that Jesus had to move up and why they matter to us. So, first of all, Jesus was enthroned in this moment as the king of all creation. Jesus' work was not done. Even though the penalty for sin had been paid for and finished on the cross, he had always been and he would always be sovereign over all things. It would be important for everyone to know that this servant king, this fully man, fully God, King Jesus, still reigns supreme. So there's this verse that I love in Hebrews. We studied it a few years ago. But Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says this about Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And in this part, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And these apostles are witnessing that happen. They're watching him sit down at the right hand. Now, why would that matter? Well, remember last semester, we had this really cool story in Kings, in 2 Kings chapter 6, when Elisha had his servant with him, and they were standing there, and they saw this marauding army coming towards them, and they got really, really scared. And especially the servant got really scared. And Elisha said, oh, Lord, would you just open his eyes so that he can see what's really happening around us. And that servant looked up and he saw chariots of fire in the heavens surrounding them. And all of a sudden he had courage, did he not, to face that army because he knew that those who were with them were greater than the ones who were coming to attack them. Well, I think it's that kind of moment for the apostles here. They get to look up and see that Christ is going to be seated in the heavenly realms at the throne of God, where all of the battles are going to be taking place, and he is going to be reigning victorious and winning every time. So therefore, he, I think that gives them courage. That makes them believe that, you know, we can go on and take this message even to our deaths, because Christ is reigning supreme for all time. Well, secondly, <clears throat> Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, but he is making intercession for all including you and me. This is huge. In ancient times, there was no separation of power for a king. It wasn't a democracy. The throne room was the place of power and the place of justice. The throne was the courtroom. And so, a little later in Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 7, 25, 
The author describes Jesus this way. He says, Jesus sacrificed for sins once and for all, able to save to the uttermost because he always or he ever lives to intercede for us. So Jesus is like our advocate, our lawyer, before the court of divine justice at the right hand of God where all of the justice is, is cast out. And it's like he's consistently pleading my case to the Father. He's saying something, I don't, I don't know exactly what he's saying, but I imagine it happening something like this. Please forgive, Amy. I know how hard it was for her to face that temptation. She failed, but I didn't. Please look at me. I, I'll take the penalty for her again and again. And the father looks at his son and whom he is very well pleased, and he is so impressed with him. And so he declares me righteous time and time and time and time again. I'm so thankful that Jesus is at the throne room of God, living to make intercession for me. Well, next, Jesus had to move up so that we could know that he is coming back. Why does that matter? Hopefully I can explain that. Let's pick back up in chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. So this is huge. This is actually very critical to how they will proceed for the rest of their, of their lives. To know that the work of salvation, yes, was finished by Jesus on the cross, but the work of restoration, of making all things new, starts right then and there and will continue in his people until Jesus returns to complete the task. Remember, uh, John recorded Jesus saying in John chapter 14, verses 2 and 3, Jesus said that he would be preparing a place for us. He would be going to his father's house and preparing a place for us so that when he comes again, he will take us to himself. So I think, again, this gives the disciples and it gives us courage to do the work that God has set before us to do as a gospel imperative until he comes again. And then finally, Jesus had to move up so that he could be with us in a new way, in an even better way than he was with those 12 apostles. Remember this really interesting scene in John chapter 20 when Mary Magdalene was at the, at the tomb and she was really, really sad. And Jesus showed up and he called her by name and she was so excited. She, she'd been crying, but she ran to him and she tried to hold on tightly to him. Do you remember what he said to her? John um, chapter 20, verse 17, he said, don't hold on to me. I'm ascending. So he had told her, he, had he told his disciples earlier in John 16, verse 7, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So it's as if he was saying to Mary Magdalene in that scene, let me ascend so that I can be in you. I will help you 
by the Holy Spirit in you, you're going to be my witnesses and you're going to be able to do it. I think this is so huge. These four things are so huge to our understanding of the gospel. A lot of people think that the gospel is really just about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And that, that encompasses the substitutionary atonement of your sins. And that's absolutely true. Jesus paid the penalty for your sins in full on the cross. That's really good news, but it's not all of it. You see, the rest of the story is that Jesus not only paid for your salvation, but he ascended to the Father to live to make intercession for you and to give his Holy Spirit to you so that you could do the work that he has prepared in advance for you to do for the praise of his glory. This is important because if you only think of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection as the gospel, then all you have to do is believe that and you get a free ride, a free ticket to heaven when you die. It really doesn't change anything else about your life in the here and now. But if you, if you understand the gospel this way, yes, you have, you have assurance that you are going to be in heaven for all of eternity, but you were saved so that you could get busy with the work that God has given us to do together. You die to yourself. You become part of something bigger. And together, you're going to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth until Jesus comes back again. And we don't just do that on our own merit or on our own accord. We do that by the power of the Holy Spirit that he leaves for us. That's the gospel. And and that's what excites me about the opportunity that we have to be a part of that together today. Because you see, finally, Jesus moved in. He moved into our hearts to transform lives for his glory. Paul would would later write about what this looks like for the Holy Spirit to live in a person and to change them from the inside out. So one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, Paul wrote this, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So we, we die to ourselves, but we surrender to the Spirit of God alive in us, changing us from the inside out. And then because of that change, we get to testify, we get to witness what God has done in us and around us. We get to share that together, and it's so exciting to be a part of that. We have purpose for, for the rest of our lives. And so I want to take the rest of our time to show you three people in the second half of chapter one that I think show us evidence of transformation. And they, you may not think about the first one, but Mary, the mother of Jesus, I think shows us some cool things. And then these two characters, Justice, he had all those other names, Joseph, Barsabbas, those sound like other people we know. So I picked Justice <laughs> and Matthias. So let's start with Mary. We're going to see her transformed. Remember, that the faith that Mary displayed when she was first told that she was going to have a baby, when she was a young teenager, marginalized in the backwoods of Nazareth, she put together a song that Luke records in his gospel, and it's so beautiful, the Magnificat. Mary saying these words, my soul magnifies the Lord. It's beautiful. And at the end, she says, from now on, all generations are going to be blessed. For he who has mighty has done great things, me and holy is his name. 
I just love that, that song because it, it demonstrates Mary's faith that, okay, the Son of God is going to be alive in me, but I believe that this is true, and I can't wait to see what he does for the glory of God. And then we don't get very much about Jesus' young life, but we get this one little story in Luke chapter 2 when he's 12 years old. He goes to the temple, and he shows himself to be really wise, and And she's pretty proud of him, even though she was mad for a little bit. But it says that she treasured all the things that he was doing in her heart. It just sounds so beautiful um, as he grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor. And then, guys, 18 years of nothing. 18 years that we know nothing about what Jesus was doing. I don't know about you, but if my son was 30 years old, sleeping on my couch and eating my food— and not getting on with the business of what, he, what I knew that he was put on this earth to do, I might be a little frustrated. Would you? I mean, I don't know. We don't, have any, we don't have any stories about this in the Bible, but I just think Mary had to have been a little frustrated. He didn't get started. That baptism of John didn't happen until he was 30 years old. <clears throat> and so I just wonder what Mary's life would have been like. And we have this really interesting story in Matthew 13, 58. When Jesus went to his hometown, Nazareth, and he just couldn't get anything done there. He couldn't perform mighty works there. He couldn't perform the miracles that he wanted to. And it says that he couldn't do that because of their unbelief. And I just wonder, do you think Mary was included in that? Because Mary and his brothers and sisters were there, and they couldn't convince people to believe. Maybe they didn't believe. Maybe she was frustrated. Maybe she was just questioning God, I trusted you wholeheartedly. When is he going to do the things that I know he was put on this earth to do? And so you get a couple, of, a couple of references about Mary. You have that one story in John 2. Only John records where she um, trusts Jesus to fix this problem at a wedding and turn the water into wine. And then you see her again at the cross when Jesus is dying with the other women who, who care for him. But you don't see her again until right here in Acts chapter 1, and I think this is huge. So let's look again at verses 12 to 14. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were were staying, Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. Now, just want to remind you, this is not Judas Iscariot. He's, he's also called Thaddeus in some of your other gospel accounts. These 11 are all with one accord devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. And I just think there's so much in that one verse that Mary is sitting there in that room risking everything because this is a scary time for them. She's joined with the disciples, and she's willing to risk her life to follow him now from this point forward. So even Jesus' mother needed this transforming power of his spirit to change her from within, from, I think, doubter to disciple. And I just love thinking about that. Well, next, let's look at these other two guys, Justice and Matthias. We're going to pick back up in verse 15. We'll read most of this. We'll skip a little bit in the middle. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120, and he said, 
Brothers, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Now, this is Judas Iscariot. And from verses 17 through 21, it, it tells us about his betrayal. He betrayed the Lord. But it was according to scripture, referenced two Psalms, Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, that said that this would happen and that they would, in fact, have to, re- to find a replacement for him. And so we pick back up in verse 21. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the 11 apostles. I want you to just for a second put yourself in the shoes of Justice and Matthias. These are two guys who have been with Jesus the whole time. They've been walking with him. They've been witnessing his miracles. They saw his death, his burial, his resurrection. They're faithful followers, but they don't have any distinction. Nobody knows their name. And the text says that the whole group gathered together to pray, and so that includes these two guys. Justice and Matthias were part of the group who gathered together to pray, to trust the Lord, to know the hearts of who it was that he had chosen for this particular assignment. Now, what was this assignment? He, they needed one person to be added to the 12, the 12, 12 apostles who would represent the 12 tribes of Israel. They would be very important to the case being made to the Jews that Jesus was, in fact, who he said he was, that he had chosen a new group of people to be his covenant people. They needed one more representative of the 12 but, but the other one isn't going to be kicked aside. The other one is going to join the rest of the, of the disciples, who's going to be witnesses as well. So both tasks were important. But these two guys prayed, and they trusted that God had in mind the one that needed to be part of the 12 and the one that needed to be part of the other group of disciples. I wonder if Matthias, you know, kind of balked when the lot fell to him. You think I, I think of myself, and I would just be like, I'm freaking out. I don't think I can do that. I don't want to be, I haven't been a part of the 12. I don't want to be a part of the 12. Maybe he did that. Maybe he argued and said, this is not what I wanted to do. This was not the task that I thought was mine. And then what about justice? Did he get his feelings hurt? You know, did he argue with some of the other apostles and say, why, why didn't you put a good word in for me? Why did you pick Matthias? I don't know. I don't know if they were, if they were struggling with that. All I do know is that they both seem to agree with everybody else that when the lot fell to Matthias, he was the one that God had chosen. I think that both of them were so transformed by the person of Jesus Christ that they believed, along with everyone else, that whoever the Lord chose for a task was the right person for that task. And he was about to baptize them with the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish all of this work. And so they just... They had to believe that in faith together. None of these men, Justice or Matthias included, saw themselves as lone rangers. 
They were all part of a family, a team. They lost their individual identities in this pursuit. Now they belonged to one another, and they lived, died, and succeeded together to the glory of God. That really inspires me. Their faith and their trust was in a man whom they had seen ascend to heaven in glory with a promise that he was going to return again, just like they saw him go. So as we close today, I want to show you my other favorite picture from Christmas. This is my extended family. I tried to practice this, and I got all um, emotional. I'm going to try not to right now. This is my mom and dad, and my two brothers were all sitting on that same row. And then those are our spouses and all of our children gathered together at my parents' house over Christmas. And this is my happiest place. I love to be with my family These are the people that know me the best. They've known me at my best and at my absolute worst, and they love me anyway. They support me. They're for me. I know I belong here no matter matter what. We have this really cool little tradition in our family. I've told some of you about it. We always have a family Olympic Games when we're together, either at Thanksgiving or at Christmas. And my brothers and I are the team captains, and then my mom divides everybody into three teams, and she picks all these little silly games that we're going to compete in, all going for this one prize, the Whittle Olympic Winner Trophy. My maiden name is Whittle, so it's the WOW Trophy. And um, just, just, just saying, I won it this year. That's not a big deal. <laughs> because it's really not about winning. It's about the fact... <laughs> that was pretty cool. that we all gather together in love for one another to pursue a goal together. And we just love being together in that process. We make lots of really fun memories. And my family is a very dim, very dim reflection of the family that God has placed you and I in together. We are bound together in the purest form of love that there is, and we're unified by a spirit, by the Spirit, and a bond of peace that cannot be broken. There's great joy when we work together on mission with God to bring him glory. So we all, we press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It's a lot better than a little dinky trophy. And it's my prayer that you all would feel as loved and as a part of God's family as I do in mine. Christ died and rose for that, He ascended to the right hand of the Father for that, and he left his spirit in us for that purpose. So let's thank him together as we pray. We thank you, God, for placing us in a family, for giving us an identity as your children, as your people in whom you dwell. And just so exciting to know that you're going to use us together. It's not all on us. It's not all on each individual person but you have work for us to do until you return. So we ask you to give us courage and strength for that task. Give us love for one another. Help us, Father, to learn to love one another as we spend time together this semester. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right.